Well, good morning. Go ahead and uh, have a seat if you haven't yet, and uh, we'll open in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for a new day and for the promise of new mercies that you uh, are faithful today as you have been uh, throughout all of our lives, and you will be because uh, that is your uh, nature and character. And so uh, we're grateful for who you are and what you've done for us. We're grateful for the history of the church, even for uh, the dark periods where, uh, where we get to learn Hopefully that we would not walk in the ways that they have walked, and, uh, and so uh, we pray that you would bless us today as we uh, consider these things. We ask it because you're good and you do good, so we ask in Christ's name, amen. Well, thanks, t- <coughs> excuse me, thanks for coming to Theological Equipping uh, class. This year we are talking about uh, church history, and, uh, and then uh, we're uh, at this point in the Middle Ages, in uh, a period of time known as the Medieval Period, and today we want to consider two uh, related topics that you'll see in the Middle Ages, uh, and that is the papacy, and then also the, uh, the medieval corruption of the church, and as we'll see, those will be, uh, greatly overlap at uh, various points. We'll see that today. But first, let's kind of get the brain juices flowing a little bit uh, with some trivia. So let's talk about some fun facts about the Pope. I've got 12 of them, 12 fun facts about the Pope. Ready? Ready? All right, let's go. Number one, what do we mean by the Pope? Well, to answer that, we need to know something about the hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church. So think of a pyramid or a triangle, which those of you who are maybe three or four rows back can't actually read, but uh, anyone who sat on the front row could, so this is my push to get you on the front row. Uh, I wrote it where you can't actually see it. And, uh, and so if you think of the, uh, the church as a, a pyramid or a triangle, uh, at the bottom you have uh, the laity, you know, just the, the normal non-clergy. Then you have deacons, then you have priests, then you have bishops, archbishops, cardinals, and the head of the Roman Catholic Church is the Pope. So the Pope is the head of the Roman Catholic Church. He's also, by definition, the bishop of the city of Rome. And according to Roman Catholic theology, he's not only the head of the Roman Catholic Church, he is uh, head of the entire church. And, uh, and so uh, that is the first thing. What do we mean by the Pope? We mean that particular person. So why do Roman Catholics think that the Pope is the head of the entire church? That's based on something that's called the Petrine theory, which is the idea that uh, it's kind of a four-part thing. Uh, a that Simon Peter, the apostle, had a position, he was given primacy over the uh, other apostles and indeed over the entire church. So that's A. B, the second part of the Petrine theory, is the idea that Peter served as bishop of the city of Rome before he was executed by Nero. According to uh, tradition, he was executed around 64 AD or so. But according to Petrine theory, he served as a bishop before that. C, that Peter's preeminence over, the, uh, over uh, the other apostles and over the church was therefore passed by him to any subsequent bishop of Rome. So his successor and any future successor of the bishop of Rome would therefore have that position of preeminence over the other apostles and over the church. And then D, therefore, the Roman church is to have ecclesiastical primacy over the other churches. So the, the city of Rome has ecclesiastical primacy over the, uh, the other cities of the empire and so forth. Now, every single one of those points upon which the Petrine theory is based is actually theologically wrong. For instance, there is no suggestion in scripture at all of apostolic primacy for Peter. In fact, the New Testament goes out of its way to guard against the exaltation of one apostle 
over another. Those of us uh, who have been studying 1 Corinthians probably recognize that idea. Plus, you read in the Bible that Paul puts himself on equal footing with, uh, with Peter. Paul even rebukes Peter uh, at times. And so there's not this idea of, of, of Peter having some sort of apostolic supremacy or, or uh, primacy over the other apostles or anything uh, like them. Um, second, even if he did have apostolic primacy, there's no historical evidence that Peter actually served as bishop of the city of Rome. We know, according to church tradition, that he was executed there, but there's nothing historically that actually suggests that he served as a church officer in that particular city. Third, even if you grant the first two, even if you grant that Peter has primacy, and even if you grant that he served as a bishop, there's no historical evidence of him, uh, I'm sorry, even if you grant those two things, that still doesn't suggest that Rome today should have primacy. After all, what about the churches that Paul planted? Should they have a degree of primacy today? Would, would they have some sort of extra authority today or something like that? So the idea of the Petrine theory is lacking, but that's the foundation of the idea of the papacy, why the Pope is seen as the head of the universal church. So where do they get that? Uh, where do they get that? Well, they infer it from a number of places. Uh, they uh, infer it from the idea that Peter had this close association with Jesus. He's at just about every single high point of, uh, of Christ's ministry and low point of Christ's ministry. You see Peter's there at the transfiguration. He's there uh, at, uh, at the crucifixion. He's there at the empty tomb. He's there at the resurrection appearances, etc. And so that's sort of a, a part of the idea that Peter has primacy because he's closer to Jesus than the other apostles. Not only that, they also appeal to a handful of passages, by far the most important passage for a Roman Catholic to prove this idea of the, uh, the primacy of Peter is from uh, Matthew 16, 16 through 19, where uh, Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And then he says, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, Petros, that means rock. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So this is the biggest proof text for the idea of the papacy and Peter's uh, primacy. The church is built upon Peter. Again, that's a wordplay uh, in Greek because Peter means rock. And so uh, the church is built on the foundation of Peter, who is the rock, and Jesus gave him the keys of the kingdom. So Peter takes those keys with him whenever he travels to Rome. He becomes the bishop there. Uh, and he exercised those keys as the bishop of Rome. And then when he died, he passed those on to his successor. And then this then introduces uh, the idea of apostolic succession. According to Roman Catholic tradition, the Roman bishop has seen this sort of unbroken line of succession throughout history, dating all the way back to Peter. Now in reality, that quote-unquote unbroken line has actually been very broken. We'll talk about that today. There have uh, at times been two popes at once. There have at times been three popes at once. Uh, there have been times where the papacy was filled with adulterers and with murderers. So it's not a very unbroken line of succession. If anything, it's more like a connect the dots. Uh, but that's the idea at least. And so that's the theological side of the Petrine theory, the Petrine argument. But there are also some historical factors that help us understand why Rome kind of rose to this position of primacy in the early church and especially into uh, the medieval uh, period. For instance, 
Think of all of the most significant cities that we've talked about in church history in the early church. So you have uh, cities like Jerusalem, Antioch, Alexandria, Constantinople, and Rome. Those are kind of the five big cities in the early church. And what's interesting is all of those except for Rome are in the east. And so all of them are battling in the east for, uh, they're jockeying for position. Rome doesn't have anybody that's battling uh, with them. They are all alone. So when the capital then shifts to Constantinople, all of a sudden the emperor is no longer in Rome either. So who's left as the most powerful man in Rome? Well, the bishop of Rome. So interestingly, you have this sort of weird, uh, paradoxical historical reality that as the Roman Empire falls, uh, as it does in the fifth century, uh, all of a sudden Rome's political influence is going to greatly diminish, but their spiritual influence is going to greatly increase because there's no other churches that are competing with them in the West for a position of uh, preeminence or primi- uh, primacy. And all of this helps understand the context in which the papacy originates and grows. All right, so that's the second question. Third question, why do we call him the Pope? Well, the Pope is not an official title of the office. In in fact, there's not just one uh, official title. Here's the full list. Listen to this full list of the, uh, the title of the Bishop of Rome. He's called the Bishop of Rome, the Vicar of Jesus Christ, the successor of the Prince of the Apostles, the Supreme Pontiff of the Universal Church, uh, Pontifex Maximus. He's the Primate of Italy, not like a monkey, but uh, Primate means Archbishop. He's the Archbishop and Metropolitan of the Roman province. He's the Sovereign of the State of the Vatican City, and he's Servant of the Servants of God, right? That's a business card. So why do we call him Pope? Well, the word Pope is from a Latin word. Anybody know the Latin word? Papa, right? And uh, what does Papa mean? Father, right? You could have guessed that, even if you know no, no Latin whatsoever. And so originally this term Papa was used of various bishops in the early church, but in the late uh, fourth century, uh, the Roman bishop Siricius said, I love it when you call me Big Papa. And so he formalized this tradition and, uh, and he ruled that the term Pope or Papa should only be used of him and his successors. So the practice of calling anyone else Papa or Pope died out in the West, although it continued as a practice uh, in the East. Uh, and so that's, the, uh, that's why we call him the Pope. Now, why do popes change their name when they take office? You might have noticed this, that whenever a Pope takes office, he changes his name from whatever his birth name is to his new papal uh, name. And that tradition started in 533 with the election of a guy named Mercurius, who was named after the Roman god Mercury. And he thought it's probably inappropriate for the Pope to be named after a pagan god, all right? If you're the the singer of the band Queen, then you can do it. But if you're the Pope, that's inappropriate. And so he changes his name to John II. And that was the first example of changing of your name. And by the 10th century, that had become rather standard practice. And then since since the 16th century, uh, every single Pope has done that, has taken a new name. Anyone want to guess what's the most popular name? John, right? There have been at least 23. I say at least because there's actually been more, uh, but there there have been at least 23. There's 23 at least that are recognized by the Roman Catholic Church. We'll talk about that later. Uh, John is then followed by Gregory and Benedict with 16 each. By the way, there has never been a Peter II, all right? No one ever wants to fill those uh, shoes. So that's why popes changed their name. How many popes have there been? Anybody want to guess? No one's even close. 
All right. Uh, About 260, all right? Rome officially uh, recognizes a a few over 260 popes, but there are actually quite a few more given the fact that uh, Rome engages in a bit of theological revisionism uh, on this topic. And uh, if there's popes in their history that they don't like, they just all of a sudden retroactively say that was actually an anti-pope. That wasn't a true pope. Uh, there's always a true pope, but sometimes there are these anti-popes. And so, um, so that's uh, kind of the process there. So there have been about 260 that they uh, actually recognize, but there have been a number uh, more. We'll talk about some of the examples of anti-popes later. By the way, this also means that the numbers are really confusing. Sometimes there's popes with the, with the exact same name. For example, there are actually two guys with the name John the 23rd. One's from the 15th century, one's from the 20th century because the first one is no longer officially recognized as being a valid pope. He's an anti-pope, a pseudo-pope or something like that. Now, where are most popes from? What country would you guess most popes were from? Italy, all right? Uh, uh, In fact, about three quarters of all popes come from Italy. Uh, After that, France and Greece lead the way, but also on the list are Poland, Israel, and even the UK, all right? Raise your hand if you knew that there was a British pope right? That's not a very popular thing. Adrian in the 12th century, we're still waiting for the first American Pope, which I predict will be a disaster if that ever happens. He'll definitely be the first guy to take the name Peter II. And uh, so now this issue of ethnicity, the nationality of the Pope will come up in the medieval period as there will actually be fights over the nationality of the next Pope. And so the church will kind of split down the lines of political uh, alliances. How long do popes serve? Well, there's no uh, canonical rule stating that popes must serve for life, but most kind of choose to do so. As John Paul II said, uh, you cannot come down from the cross. That said, a few popes have resigned. We saw that recently in 2013 with the resignation of Benedict the, uh, the 16th, which was really significant because it was actually the first papal resignation in, uh, in six centuries. And by the way, when, uh, when Benedict resigned in 2013, uh, he resigned, but he wanted to keep his uh, title. He wanted to still be called the Pope, Pope Emeritus or something like that. He wanted to keep his papal robe as a symbol of his office. And he also wanted to keep his residence in the Vatican, right? So all of the perks, just none of the work, right? That sounds like a great gig. So death is by far the most common reason to elect a new pope. There have also been uh, times where there have been resignations and even times in which popes were forced out. Again, that's because the Roman Catholic Church would say those were pseudo-popes, those were uh, anti-popes or something like that. So this is actually a really big question mark in Roman Catholic canon law. What would happen if a pope were so impaired, mentally impaired or whatever it might be, as to be able to, uh, to, to, to be unable to willfully resign. So in the Middle Ages, there's actually going to be a scandal that brought up the question of whether or not a church council could actually depose a sitting pope. And we'll talk about that uh, shortly. The average age when a pope is crowned is in his 70s and his average pontificate is about seven years. The youngest pope is debated. It was either John the 11th or 12th at either 18 or 20. The oldest at his death, Leo the 12th in the 19th century was 93 years old. The longest pontificate belongs to Pius the 9th who served for 32 years in the 19th century. The second longest was John Paul II who served for 26 years starting in 1978. The shortest 
is Urban VII, not shortest in stature, but shortest in his uh, length of pontificate. He only served for 13 days in the 16th century. In fact, he died even before his coronation ceremony. And the second shortest was John Paul I, who was actually the Pope when I was born, which is significant because he was only Pope for about a, uh, a month in 1978. So as an interesting bit of trivia, the second shortest papacy of John Paul I and the second longest papacy of John Paul II were actually consecutive, back to back. Now, what is the protocol to meet the Pope? You ever find yourself in Rome, you're out and about, you see the Pope, what do you have to do? There's actually an elaborate uh, system of papal protocol. For example, you have to wear black when you meet the Pope, all right? That's kind of a tradition that they've established. However, certain Catholic royalty are permitted to wear uh, white in his presence, and that is called privilege du blanc, or white privilege, which actually means something much different than how our culture uses it. In addition, you would traditionally kiss the Pope's signet ring, and uh, although uh, that has uh, been recently discouraged because of what? COVID, right? And so the, 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 uh, the recently over the past couple of years, that's been discouraged because of germs. Also, somewhat related tradition, did you know that it's against papal protocol for the Pope to eat in public, right? You never see TMZ get a picture of the Pope eating at Sbarro or something like that because that's against papal protocol. Now, how does the Pope get around? Traditionally, the Pope was carried around on a gestatorial chair, which is a chair that's carried on the shoulders of papal attendants. Later, he then used horse-drawn carriages, but now he uses what? The Pope mobile, right? Uh, and uh, in fact, there's not just one Pope mobile. There are about 20 of them uh, in total, six of uh, which are stored in the Vatican garage. And the Pope Mobile is made by Mercedes-Benz. It costs $530,000. It's armor-plated, it's bulletproof, and it can go speeds up to 160 miles per hour. This is literally Zach's dream car, right? It's bulletproof and it's Catholic. He loves all things, bulletproof and Catholic. All right, number 10, do Catholics believe that the Pope is infallible? And the answer to that is yes and no. Papal infallibility doesn't mean that the Pope never makes a mistake. Of course the Pope makes mistakes. He makes mistakes all the time. Instead, it means that he's preserved from the possibility of error, quote, when in the exercise of his office as shepherd and teacher of all Christians, in virtue of his office as shepherd and teacher of all Christians, in virtue of his supreme, supreme apostolic authority, he defines a doctrine concerning faith or morals to be helped, uh, to be helped by the whole church. Uh, so this is called et cathedra. And when the, Pope, when the Pope is speaking from his chair, from his uh, cathedral, from his throne, his papal throne. So he's not just preserved from the reality of error, he's preserved from the very possibility of error. So this is why the idea of anti-popes becomes so important in Roman Catholic theology as well. Because certain popes have taught certain things that are considered heresy by the church, not just by Catholics, but by Protestants and uh, Eastern Orthodox and so forth. So how do you keep the idea of papal infallibility? How do you keep the idea of unbroken apostolic succession if some popes have actually been heretics? And the idea is by saying that these weren't actually real popes. Retroactively, you would say they weren't speaking uh, uh, as popes, they're anti-popes, or they weren't speaking ex cathedra or something like that. And so this idea of papal infallibility will, uh, will, will f uh, first be defended during the medieval period, but it wasn't actually formally adopted as dogma until the first Vatican Council in the 19th century, 1869 to 18. 
70. Now, how does the church choose a new pope? Historically, there have been a number of ways. For example, in 236, a guy named Fabian, who wasn't even a papal candidate, he was simply there among the, uh, the, the people who were uh, electing a new pope. He was chosen, Fabian was chosen, because a dove landed on his shoulder during the discussions, and they thought, that's a sign from the Holy Spirit. But eventually, the church realized that kind of the landing habits of migratory birds is probably not the best system to choose a, the vicar of Christ. So starting in 1179, the College of Cardinals, that's the church office, not the bird, uh, was given the exclusive right to choose a pope by a two-thirds vote. By the way, what's the deal? Maybe you've seen before whenever they elect a new a pope and there's this uh, deal with smoke that's coming out of the Sistine, uh, Chapel, Sixth, Sistine Chapel. Well, that's called fumata, and that goes back over 100 years. So when a papal conclave meets to elect a new pope, They'll take the ballots after they've counted all the ballots and then they burn all of those ballots and then a chemical compound is added to the fire depending on the results of the vote. If the vote didn't reach a consensus and there's not a new pope, then uh, uh, black uh, smoke is added to it in order to let the people know that they're not yet finished with their work. But the, if the vote does reach a consensus, then they'll add a chemical that will make white smoke come out of the chimney of the Sistine Chapel and then the, the crowd that's down below can see that a new pope has been elected. All right, so now we're kind of warmed up. Let's get a little bit more heady with our final question. What is the origin of the papacy? Well, we've talked about uh, a number of times before that within the early church that the bishops of various cities were, uh, there was kind of a, a bit of a, uh, cooperation between them, and they're generally viewed as equals. However, for various reasons, that began to change. As early as the second century, Irenaeus, the bishop of Lyon, had appealed to the preeminent authority of Rome, where he said the apostolic tradition has been, quote, preserved continuously. And then by the third century, we start seeing the idea of apostolic succession from Peter being used as a support for why Rome should have primacy in the empire. And then by the fourth century, the Bishop of Rome was accorded a position of respect and was generally kind of recognized as a, quote, first among equals. In fact, at the Council of Constantinople in 381, they recognized that Rome has the primacy and then that uh, Constantinople was second in its privilege as uh, being the new seat of the empire. And then during this time, so the fourth century, during this time, Rome was viewed as having apost uh, appellate, uh, appellate, sorry, that's the word, appellate jurisdiction. In other words, when two bishops can't work something out, so maybe Constantinople and Alexandria are having a fight or something like that, they would appeal to the Roman bishop to help adjudicate that discussion. And then by the fifth century, the Roman bishop began to view himself as having authority over, uh, uh, to be able to instruct the uh, universal church. And not just instruct the church, in fact, to instruct the world. So Galatius, uh, the first in the fifth century, he said that God gave both sacred and royal power to the pope and to the king. But since the pope had to give an account to God for the king at judgment, the pope was therefore more important. He was preeminent. Think of the sun and the moon, right? They're both these great lights, but one is inherently greater than the other. One derives its light from the other. So that's kind of the idea of the papacy and the king. The king's authority derives from the pope, whereas the pope's is directly from 
Christ. So this general time of the fifth to the sixth century is when you have the beginnings of the modern concept of the papacy. When it comes to the question of who the, who's the first pope, there are really three different answers to that, three different ways that you can view that. Roman Catholicism will obviously say Peter is the first pope, but in reality, the way that we conceive of the papacy today, that modern concept of the papacy doesn't exist until the fifth or the sixth century with either Leo the Great or Gregory the Great. Both of them have the great in their name because they're kind of foundational for the modern concept of the papacy. Leo the first came to power in 440. He was the first to take the title of Pontifex, uh, Pontifex Maximus which was the, uh, the title of the chief priest in the old pagan days uh, of Rome. And he claimed primacy over all the other bishops of the church. But then it's really under a guy named Gregory the Great, uh, who is kind of the bridge between the patristic and the medieval popes in the sixth century. And we see many of the modern concepts, many of the, the features of papal power uh, that come about under Gregory the Great. So let's talk a little bit about that rise and then the fall of the papacy in the medieval period, beginning with the rise. So a few weeks ago, we considered the birth of the Holy Roman Empire, which uh, remember Voltaire helpfully said was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. And we saw that there's this alliance between the Franks, who aren't French, they're actually German, the Franks and the, uh, the papacy. Between each king uh, of the Franks and, uh, and the Pope, there is some quid pro quo. There is a degree of bartering that's going to take place. And though there is an alliance between the Holy Roman Empire and, uh, and the, the papacy or the Holy Roman Emperor and the papacy, there's also this jockeying for position in which king and Pope are asserting their primacy. And here's the, the crucial question that defines most of the early Middle Ages. Who is more powerful? The one who wears the crown, that's the king, or the one who places the crown on the head of the king, that's the pope. Which is supreme, the sword uh, of the kingdom of man or the keys of the kingdom of God? And that question pops up time and time again. Go back and listen to the, uh, our lecture on the Holy Roman uh, uh, Empire. Uh, that will be the question for the 8th through the 10th centuries with guy like, guys like Pepin the Short and Charlemagne and Ottoman the First, uh, who's the first to be called the Holy Roman Emperor. And so that back and forth between the Pope and the King or the Emperor will come to a head a number of times but one in particular is worth mentioning and that's called the lay investiture controversy. The lay investiture controversy. This is something you need to know about. So what is investiture? What literally refers to, you see the word vest in there? It literally refers to the putting on of the official robes from the Latin investere, which means to clothe. So the investiture controversy was about who has the right to clothe uh, the, uh, a church officer? Who has the right to appoint them to their office? Is that for the church or is that for the state? Is that uh, a, 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 a prerogative of the pope or the emperor? And originally it was kind of a bit of a both and. A bishop's spiritual authority was bestowed on him by a church official, whereas their feudal or their civil authority was invested by a king or a noble. But over time, kings just said, let's cut out the middleman, let's skip the church, and they started controlling both the appointment and the installation of bishops. Typically, so that they could uh, give the position to a friend or a relative uh, so that they could make a little money off of it. So that's lay investiture, investiture by a layman or a non-clergyman. Then in 1073, a guy named Hildebrand was elected as a pope, Pope Gregory VII. 
And instead of conceding this degree of equality between the state and the church, he envisioned a, uh, a church-run state. In other words, he said that the spiritual power was superior or supreme over the temporal power. So in 1075, he formally prohibits lay investiture. He threatened to excommunicate anyone, that's a lay person, from, uh, from investing uh, someone in the church, and he uh, he threatened to excommunicate them, and uh, and so now this was de- uh, virtually a declaration of war against the, uh, the Europe's rulers. This is a source of a lot of their income, and uh, and so this didn't sit well with a number of Europe's kings. In particular, it didn't sit well with Henry the Fourth, who was the Holy Roman Emperor. So Henry disobeyed. He appointed his own choice as Archbishop of Milan. And so in response, the Pope gave him a bit of an ultimatum. He said, either repent or be excommunicated. Well, the emperor either thought that the Pope was bluffing or he thought he had a bit of a better hand. So Henry convened a synod. And that synod or council declared that Gregory was a usurper to the papal throne. And he said, wherefore, henceforth, we renounce now and for the future all obedience to thee, that is, the Pope. So what do you think that Gregory did? Well, he excommunicated Henry. And, get this, he also deposed him from his throne and absolved his subjects from their oaths of allegiance. Now, this might not have gone very far, but the German nobles actually sided with the Pope and they revolted against Henry. So now the king was in a bit of, a tr- a bit of a trouble. His empire was in turmoil. His nobles have now sided with the Pope. And so there was only one thing for him to do. So he made the long journey to see the Pope face to face at a place called Canossa in Northern Italy. But the Pope wanted to kind of rub it in a bit and make sure that he was really repentant and kind of send a sign to other kings. And so the Pope made the king, the emperor, the Holy Roman Emperor, made him stand barefoot in the snow for three days begging for forgiveness before agreeing to see him and revoking the excommunication. He said, we loosed the chain of the anathema and at length received him into the lap of the Holy Mother Church. So the Pope won this standoff and the emperor was humiliated. That said, it didn't really solve the problem of primacy. It didn't really solve the question of uh, authority, but it was symbolic of the reality that times were changing. And those times, those changing times were most manifest a century later in a guy named Pope Innocent III, probably the most powerful pope in all of history. You might remember him from the Crusades. We talked about him whenever we talked about those. His one desire was to retake Jerusalem from Saladin, the leader of the, uh, the, uh, the Islamic arm, army that had taken Jerusalem. And this led to the disastrous events of the Fourth and Fifth Crusades. If you remember the Fourth Crusades, when the Crusaders actually, instead of going to Jerusalem, they actually went to Constantinople and sacked Constantinople. And, uh, and so this was during Innocent III's reign, the most powerful pope in history. He also launched the Inquisition against heretics in Europe. And he, was, uh, he much more forcefully uh, and decisively humiliated and defeated the emperor. Long story short, there was a power struggle in the Holy Roman Empire as to the rightful successor to the throne between two, gri- two guys, one named Otto IV and the other named Philip. And Pope Innocent sides with Otto. And that's a huge thing because the Pope is the most powerful man in the world. So Otto becomes emperor 
But he turns around and he bites the hand that feeds him by breaking with the Pope. So the Pope excommunicated Otto. And that wasn't all that common, but what was much more uncommon was that Pope Innocent III also said, not only do I excommunicate him, but I also depose him from his throne and I appoint another in his place. And, uh, and so in other words, not only do popes have the right to anoint kings or emperors, but also to depose them and even to choose their successors. Again, this is the height of papal power. This is the late 12th to early 13th century. Within another century, the papacy would be drastically weakening, weakening and, uh, and wobbling due to two big events. That is the move of the papal residence and what is called the Great Schism. First, the, uh, the move. So remember the story of Icarus from Greek mythology? Anybody remember him? What did he do? Yeah, he, he built these wings of wax and he flew too close to the sun. Actually, his dad built the wings of wax. But anyway, he, uh, he flew too high with these wings of wax. So he plummeted back to the earth and drowned in the sea. That's kind of the story of the papacy in the, the uh, medieval church. As we just saw, papal power was at its apex in influence in the 13th century. In 1302, so just the beginning of the 14th century, Pope Boniface VIII said, I'm gonna kick it up a notch. And so he issued what's called the Unum Sanctum, which said every creature is subject to the Roman pontiff, to the Pope. And so in one sense, this is the high water mark for the papacy. In another, it was the beginning of its fall. As you can imagine, the various kings, the various emperors of Europe didn't like to be told that they're subject to anyone, not even the Pope. Especially the king of France didn't like that. So he started a smear campaign against the Pope. And what do you think the Pope did? Well, what they always do, right? They excommunic he excommunicated him. So the king responds by kidnapping the Pope. And he eventually released him, but Boniface uh, was so affected by this that he died shortly after. And his successor was a guy named Benedict Cumberbatch. No, that's Benedict... <laughs> The 11th, Benedict the 11th. And he's widely regarded as a puppet pope for the king of France. And his first act of business was to revoke the previous excommunication of the, uh, the king. Then he dies with rumors circulating that he had been poisoned. So there's this now power struggle between French and Italian cardinals. And for a year, they fight over whom to elect as the next pope before settling on a French archbishop who took the name Clement the fifth. And one of his first acts was to move the papal establishment from Rome to France. Initially, he moved to Poitiers, but in 1309, he then moved to Avignon. This will then usher in a nearly 70-year period in which the papacy has moved from Rome to Avignon, what is historically called the, quote, Babylonian captivity of the church. As Israel was exiled to Babylon for her sins, so the church is exiled to Avignon is the idea. You see in your notes there, Le Palais de Pop, uh, which is now a tourist attraction, but was the papal palace during the Avignon papacy. So what's the big deal, right? People move all the time, especially today. We have members here at Parkway who live here in McKinney, but their office is a thousand miles away in California because they can work remotely and California is a mess. So why is it a problem for the Bishop of Rome to not be in Rome? Well, because Rome isn't just where he happens to live, it's essential to his office and authority. Remember, the idea is that Rome has primacy over these other cities. Now, to be fair, many popes didn't live full-time 
in Rome. In fact, a number of popes spent a majority of their time elsewhere, but they always had a goal of returning. It's the difference between moving someplace and vacationing or being a snowbird or something like that where you live in uh, Minnesota and then occasionally or for the winter you come down to Arizona or Florida or something. So being outside of Rome wasn't a weird, unprecedented thing. But officially, permanently moving the papal residence uh, was unprecedented. Now, why did Clement move the, the, uh, the papacy? At least one of the factors was nationalism. This is a period of history where France and Italy are battling for supremacy. And so having a pope of your own nationality was a huge deal. But having the papal office and the, the papal throne and the papal residence and all that kind of stuff in your nation was even better. So that was one factor. But another factor was the fact that Rome at the time was like an autonomous zone uh, today. There was chaos in the streets. So part of Clement's thinking was to move the papacy someplace where he can lead the church without the pressures of this cultural anarchy. So from 1309 to 1377, the papacy officially resided in Avignon, France. During that time, seven different men served as popes, all of whom were French, by the way, and all seven said, I would love to return the papacy to Rome. But none of them actually did until finally in 1377, Pope Gregory XI returned to Rome. So you think the problem has been solved, right? Wrong, because two years later, the Pope died and that ushered in a second huge stain on the church that forever diminished the power of the papacy. And that's a period known as the Great Schism. What is the Great Schism? Well, we saw Gregory, the Pope, Gregory XI, he died in March of 1378. And after the traditional 10-day mourning period, a new pope was elected. His name was Urban VI. However, five months later, the same cardinals who had elected Urban now declared that Urban's election was invalid. And so they elected another pope, Clement VII. Well, why did they do that? Why did they declare his election invalid and elect a new one? Well, it depends on who you ask. The cardinals said that the reason was the reason that the election was null and void was because during the time that they're voting, a Roman mob was outside and they're shouting out, Romana lo, uh, lo valema, uh, we want a Roman. And the cardinals were so afraid of the mob that they capitulated and they elected Urban under compulsion. So this is kind of like confession under torture. It isn't valid, right? That's what the cardinals said. Since the election was null and void, Therefore, Urban's papacy was null and void, basically what a lot of people said when they stormed the Capitol a few months uh, back, right? But the cardinals said they weren't deposing him for being pope because he was never actually pope in the first place, right? He was an anti-pope. Now, it, it, to be honest, it does seem like a historical fact. There was a mob outside during the deliberations, but what is much less certain is whether that actually affected the proceedings at all. In fact, historical records actually show that in, the, that in the days immediately after the election, all of the cardinals sent letters to their uh, relative uh, people expressing their satisfaction, their joy at the results of the election. So it seems like the whole election under compulsion idea was just a smokescreen from the real reason a loophole kind of in canon law since technically they couldn't just remove a sitting valid pope, so they just questioned his validity instead. So if the mob wasn't the real reason, what was the real reason? I think the real reason historically was because Urban seemed to be a bit of a loose canon. He begins his papacy by attacking churchmen 
who derived their income from, uh, from places to, to which they were perpetually absent. This is called absenteeism, and it was a big problem in the Middle Ages. Like if I were to get my salary here at Parkway, but I don't live in the area, I don't actually ever preach here, I spend all of my time traveling around itinerantly, doing this other stuff, I just video in some messages or something, not that any pastors ever actually do that. But Urban attacked that practice. He also began to preach against the luxurious living uh, of certain cardinals, stripped cardinals of their rank for various excesses. So it looks like he's beginning some really good and healthy housekeeping to reform the church. But then he begins to get violent. He actually physically attacks some church officers. And when six cardinals uh, complain about this, he had them imprisoned or worse. In fact, five of them are never seen or heard from again. So it seems like he has a bit of a mental breakdown and that seems to be the real reason he was removed. As one elector later confessed, if he had behaved prudently, he could have remained Pope, all right? Now here's the problem. There's no real solution in Roman Catholic canon law for dealing with a crazy Pope, right? You could try to convince him to resign, but he's crazy, he's not gonna resign. You couldn't depose him though. So the cardinals hatched this idea of questioning the validity of his election in the first place. It's kind of like when people get married for a year and it isn't working out, but they don't want to get a quote divorce. So they just try to get a what? Annulment, all right? As if that's any different or any better. So now you have two popes. You have crazy Urban and you have this other guy, Clement. And Urban lives in Rome because he's not moving out of the Vatican. Clement lives in Avignon. And, uh, and so the lines were drawn with Europe splitting according to these alliances. Some followed the Avignon Pope, others followed the Roman Pope, each of whom claimed to be the only Pope. And they excommunicated the other to prove it. And that situation between these two particular men would last for about 10 years and then Urban dies. So problem solved, right? Wrong. Every time I say right, you just say wrong because that's what we'll see over and over. If only the Roman Cardinals would have elected Clement. Urban's dead. If they just elect Clement and brought him from Avignon, the schism would have ended, but they instead elected Boniface the Ninth. And his first order of business is to excommunicate Clement the Seventh, just in case the previous excommunication didn't stick. Then Clement died a few years later. So again, this is the perfect opportunity for reconciliation. There's now only one Pope. Problem solved, right? Wrong, right? Clement's supporters instead elected Benedict Thirteenth. Then Boniface died. Problem solved, right? No, his supporters elected Innocent Seventh, who then died and was replaced by Gregory Twelfth. So around this time, the, Pope, uh, the, the church recognizes we're not getting out of this mess, right? There's no way out of this mess. Obviously, one of the popes could resign and both popes actually thought that's a splendid idea. If the other guy will do it, I'm not gonna do it. And so there were uh, suggestions then of calling a general council. The only problem was that technically only the Pope could call a general council. But he wouldn't call a council that would in effect be standing over him and would potentially depose him. So uh, he wouldn't uh, call a council that would imply that a council is more authoritative than the papacy. This would lead to what is called conciliarism conciliarism. What is conciliarism? It's the idea that ultimate ecclesiastical authority resided in the church itself and not in the Pope. In other words, a church council, conciliar council, would, could exercise authority over the Pope. 
And this was not the view of the church for most of the Middle Ages. Instead, it was always seen as a prerogative of the Pope to call councils, and thus the Pope was viewed as authoritative over councils. But drastic times call for drastic measures because there seemed to be no other way out of the chaos. So in 1409, 40 years after this began, a council was called at Pisa. Right? One, of the, uh, one of the largest assemblies in church history to that point with hundreds of church officers, cardinals, archbishops, bishops, proxies, abbots, university professors, etc. Basically, the entire European church met together to solve the crisis. And their solution was to depose both popes and elect a new pope. Here are the words of the council. This sacred synod acting for the universal church, acts as a court in the present case against Benedict XIII and Gregory XII, decrees that they were and are schismatics, nourishers of schism and notorious heretics. This synod deprives, deposes, and excommunicates Peter and Angelo, that's their given names because they've been deposed from being popes in the previous synods, and forbids them to act as supreme pontiff. This synod declares the Roman see vacant. In other words, the council concluded that a council can overrule the Pope. This is a massively significant turn in medieval theology. Remember, we are just a, a little over a century removed from the height of papal power. So they hold a new election and they appoint Alexander V, which means the other guys will naturally step down, right? Wrong. They each say, you can't tell me what to do. I'm the Pope. Right, so now there's three popes, which sounds like a great idea. That's three times the amount of papal power, except by definition, there can be only one pope because there's only one set of the keys because God forgot to make a copy. By the way, this was not actually the first time in history that there were actually three popes. A couple of centuries earlier, the situation had already come up, but it was very short-lived, and so it didn't cause a massive stain on the church. But again, this idea of quote-unquote unbroken line of apostolic succession is cute, but it isn't historically accurate. Back to the story. There's now three popes. That's a problem. But Benedict and Gregory are super old. So surely Alexander will outlive them and the problem will be over, right? Wrong, because Alexander dies the very next year. So this is the problem with appointing old popes, right? If I die and you hire some guy in his 90s, don't say I didn't warn you. Now, with Alexander dead, the council needs to elect a new pope because they've already said the other two guys aren't popes, so they elect John the 23rd. By the way, if you Google John the 23rd, most references will be to a pope from the 20th century, so you can see how this is going to go for this guy. Long story short, John the 23rd was eventually forced to resign, as did Gregory in Rome, leaving only Benedict in Avignon. But the council had already deposed Benedict, so they had to elect another one. And they elect Martin V in 1417. And by this point, Benedict was basically just living in exile. He had no real friends and no supporters. And so when he finally died, no successor was elected. And so the schism was finally over, right? Wrong. You think at one of these points, it would be right, but it never is. Because this big council later split, thus meaning that there was only one pope but now there are actually two general ecumenical worldwide councils. And then one council decides, well, we're a council, and what do councils do? They elect popes, so we gotta elect another pope. So the very council that had been called to, so caused to, uh, called to solve the problem of two popes actually now creates a problem of two popes. Thankfully, one of those councils disbanded, 
One of the popes did resign and the schism was eventually over. But in the process, it was clear that the papacy had won in a sense. By the end, it was clear that councils were subject to popes and not vice versa. So the idea of conciliarism was dead. So in one sense, the papacy won. In another sense, it dramatically lost. In particular, the papacy lost its social influence and power. As you can imagine, during a century, this is nonstop, a century from the Babylonian captivity of the church when the church is in Avignon to the great schism, right? The moral authority of the papacy drastically declined. If nothing else, the people didn't even know who or where the Pope was. So how could they look to him for any sort of help? But there was another reason that the moral authority of the Pope was being questioned as well. And that is the moral corruption of the Middle Ages. You've heard the phrase before that power tends to corrupt. What's the next part of that? Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Well, that phrase was actually first written about the medieval church and in particular, the papacy. And one of the myths that we've tried to dispel over the past uh, few weeks is the idea that the Middle Ages are the quote, dark ages uh, in, uh, as if there's no intellectual uh, achievement or development. In fact, there's vast development that takes place in the Middle Ages. But one area in which that moniker works is in regards to the declining morals in the church. Some of that is to be expected given the reality of, uh, of national forced conversion. We talked before about how kings like Charlemagne would capture peoples and basically say, you have the option of sword or baptism. So the result was what's called nominalism. The majority of the population were Christian only in the sense of name, not so much in spirit. So nominalism was this huge uh, problem and it was one form of moral corruption prevalent in the Middle Ages, as was simony. What is simony? Well, simony derives from, uh, the term derives from the story in Acts 8 where a guy named Simon, simony, Simon, Simon the magician attempts to purchase the power to give out the Holy Spirit, like he's a franchise owner or something like that, and he can purchase the right to give out the the Holy Spirit. So simony is the practice of selling church privileges, such as church offices. Imagine if we plant Jared, we need to replace him, hire somebody else. So I I hire a guy with no education, no qualification, and he's known to everybody as being an adulterer and a drunkard. So you come and you ask me, why did I hire this guy? And I say, well, he gave me $10,000. That's simony, and that was rampant in the medieval period. For example, in 1451, this is just one example, there's thousands of others. 1451, Duke Amadeus VIII of Savoy, he secured the appointment of his son as Bishop of Geneva. That's not so bad, except when you realize his son was only eight years old, all right? He's the Bishop of Geneva at eight years old. So that was a common example of corruption in the church, simony. Um, as was absenteeism, which we mentioned uh, earlier, in which a church officer would collect a salary from a church but never actually goes there, all right? So one of my favorite examples is from 16th century France, the, uh, the Archbishop of Sins, or I don't know how you pronounce that. He was so busy doing other stuff that he only attended one service at his cathedral. Anyone want to guess what it was? You would think it would be Christmas or maybe Easter, It wasn't, it was his own burial service. It was the only one he ever attended. So that was a problem, all right? Uh, As was the fact that during this period, monasteries were depicted as lice-ridden dens of homosexuality. That might be a bit hyperbolic, but it's still kind of telling. Illiteracy among the lower clergy was rampant. They would typically just learn a few Latin phrases to carry out their duties, but they might not even know the meaning 
of those words and this corruption went all the way up to the top. There are lots of examples of uh, immoral popes. Here are just a few of the more notorious examples. Pope Stephen the, the, uh, the sixth from the ninth century. Pope Stephen was mad over a slight by a previous pope. So whenever he rises to power, he has the previous pope's body exhumed, dressed in papal robes, and placed on the papal throne to stand trial in what is known as the cadaver synod. But that wasn't enough for him. So he had the body mutilated, dragged through Rome, buried, exhumed again, and thrown in the Tiber River. Stephen himself was strangled to death about a year later. Pope Sergius III in the 10th century, he's mostly known for literally killing the competition. He wanted to be Pope so bad that he ordered the murder of two previous popes. He also allegedly fathered a son who would later become Pope himself. Now, I would love for my son to be a pastor, but for a Pope's son to be the Pope isn't a noble thing. Why not? Because the Pope's taken a vow of celibacy, right? And, uh, and so this was a, a problem. That's Pope Sergius III. And then Pope John Twelfth, also in the 10th century. Count the red flags on this guy. Accusations against him included that he had consecrated a 10-year-old as bishop. He had invoked the pagan gods. He had struck and mutilated men. He had murdered several other men. He turned the papal palace into a bordello. He committed arson and adultery. And he hunted publicly. One of those things is not like the other, all right? That's Pope John Twelfth. He met his demise while in bed with a married woman. Tradition is a bit blurry. He was either killed by the woman's husband or he suffered a stroke in the throes of passion. But you'll notice all of those examples are from the late 9th or uh, 10th centuries, a time that is known as the pornocracy of the church, the pornocracy of the church or the saculum obscurum which means dark age of the church. So dark ages is not uh, a good term for the Middle Ages in general, but it is a very good term for what's going on in the papacy during this time. So this is certainly not to suggest that every pope ever or all medieval popes were corrupt and immoral. Not all popes were wicked, but some were, which again argues against the idea of an unbroken line of succession or faithfulness. Now, before we pray, I don't think we'll have time to do questions today. I want to mention one other factor since we're talking about corruption in the medieval church, and that is theological corruption. We talked about most of these things in other lessons, but I thought it might be helpful to summarize some of this uh, here. So theological corruption in the church that you see in the Middle Ages in particular. As you, you know this, but in reality, there's never been a perfectly pure church in regards to doctrine. Right, even in the the uh, the biblical period where the apostles are still alive, even in the early church, you have Judaizing uh, legalism, people denying the resurrection, and so forth. And then in the, in the church fathers, likewise, they all uh, have some wacky ideas. All right, and then you have heresies like the Trinitarian heresies and the Christological heresies and the anthropological heresies of guys like Pelagius and so forth. So you've always had heresy in the church. In fact, Jesus says that's going to always be the case. But we see this exacerbation of theological corruption in the, uh, the Middle Ages in particular. And that kind of makes sense, all right? It kind of makes sense because in the early church, there are more checks and balances, as we've talked about. If someone in Alexandria or someone in Antioch says something crazy, then a bishop in Jerusalem or in Constantinople or whatever it might be could correct them. But as Rome become, becomes preeminent in the, uh, in the West, there really is no more checks and balances. 
By the way, that's one of the reasons, again, why we have multiple elders and preachers and teachers so that we don't drift, right? If I say something stupid, and I do, then Zach or Tim or Dave or Wade or whoever it might be, uh, others can correct me and vice versa. But that really isn't the case in the Roman Catholic Church. That really isn't the case when the papacy and the papal system begins to drift. There is no real plurality at the top there are multiple deacons, there's multiple priests, there's multiple bishops, multiple archbishops, there's multiple ar- uh, cardinals, but there's only one pope, except for those periods where there's two popes or three popes, but they're anti-popes. And so there's no real system whenever they begin to drift. There's no real plurality to correct or rebuke them. So what are some of the examples of theological drift in the Middle Ages. We've talked about these before, so we won't expound upon them, but I'll just mention them so that they are fresh in your mind as we begin to transition to the Reformation shortly. So seven that I'll mention. Number one, the expansion and distortion of sacraments, including things like transubstantiation. Um, So that's one of them that you'll see in the uh, Middle Ages. The second one, the rise of purgatory and of penance and of indulgences. We've talked about those a number of times. We'll continue to talk about those. Number three, related to the above, a view of justification that was meritorious rather than by grace alone through faith alone. We've talked about this before, but in, uh, in the, the debate between uh, Augustine and Pelagius, the church decides that salvation must be grace alone. All right, it has to be grace alone. But it wouldn't affirm faith alone for hundreds of years. That doesn't actually come about till the Reformation. And so the the medieval church is going to say it's grace alone, but that grace then manifests itself in the various works that we do. By our works, which we do by grace, we merit merit justification and so forth. So this meritorious view of grace rather than grace alone uh, through faith alone. Number four, Mariology, you have this obsession with, uh, with Mary, you have a slow trickle of veneration of Mary. You have things like her perpetual virginity and so forth. This culminated actually relatively recently in the assertion of her immaculate conception. We don't actually get that idea uh, formally uh, recognized as dogma until 1854. And then in 1950, we actually get the idea that she was miraculously assumed to heaven, that she didn't actually uh, die uh, in, uh, in 1950, that was the idea. So Mariology was something, though, that you see uh, beginning to creep up in the uh, medieval church, this obsession with Mary. Fifth, the growth of the magisterium. Magisterium is the teaching authority of the church in which tradition of the church is placed uh, side by side to Scripture. So in, uh, in uh, Protestant theology, you have Scripture, which is the norm of tradition. Tradition is below Scripture, but in Roman Catholicism, that is not the case. So if you ask a Roman Catholic, where do you find that in the Bible? It doesn't matter to them. It's kind of like if your, your kid comes and asks you, hey, can I go outside and play? And you say yes. They don't also have to get permission from mom or from dad, from the other, uh, from your spouse. If they, they simply have one parent that's given them permission, that is sufficient. That is the case in Roman Catholicism. It doesn't matter if scripture says something. If the church has already said this is dogma, it doesn't matter if it's found in scripture because those are two uh, competing sources of authority. In fact, I would say that in Roman Catholicism, uh, scripture is actually uh, subjected 
to tradition because the church is seen as the ultimate authoritative interpreter of uh, scripture. So the church, the Roman Catholic church is the one who determines what scripture actually means and what it actually says and so forth. So that's one of the things that you'll see in the middle ages is this growth of the magisterium, the teaching uh, authority of the church. Sixth, the mingling of theology and superstition due to the quote mass conversion of, uh, of pagans that you'll see. And, uh, and so you have this mingling of theology and superstition. Uh, and then seventh, the laity and clergy divide. There is this strong distinction in Roman Catholicism between the clergy and, uh, and the laity. And so there's a number of others, all of which will provide the theological fuel for the smoldering reformation, which is most of what we'll talk about for the next uh, few weeks. For now, Let's pray. Sorry we didn't get to, uh, to questions today. Father, I thank you for your grace and mercy. I thank you that even though uh, your uh, bride is blemished and defiled, uh, that your son is not, and, uh, and that our worth and our value is not found in uh, our lack of uh, blame or our lack of blemish, but uh, rather in your sufficiency and your grace and your mercy and the uh, the completed person and work uh, of your son. And so uh, we love you. Uh, we pray that you would protect us from walking in some of the, the, the errors of those who have gone before us and that you'd help us to be faithful. Pray that you'd prepare our hearts as we uh, leave this time and uh, move into a time of, of corporate worship, Lord. You'd prepare our hearts to, uh, to pray and to sing and to consider your word and to take communion and to do all these uh, gifts that you've given to us. We pray these things because you're good and you do good. So we ask in Christ's name, amen.